Uh, pretty exciting. I, I love Camp Fairwood every year as, again, a reflection of our multi-generational family and, and what it means to enjoy uh, in all ages and stages of life. And uh, you saw the volleyball champion up there. Uh, my team that I assembled lost in the second round. But much like the bags tournament, and there was an asterisk next to last year's, I was brought on to the championship team, and we were able to pull out a victory. So I think there's an asterisk next to that volleyball tournament win. But I hope you saw the absolute highlight is just seeing nine people uh, declare and celebrate this this uh, this life in Christ through baptism. And so that that for us is is a an essential uh, the element that we love and celebrate every year. And, and I hope it speaks to who we are and, and what we what we embody and desire to be as a community. We take Matthew 28 seriously. That's that's for us a big deal around here. What it means to go therefore and as you go make disciples. Because it feels like as we look around Western evangelical culture, there's this problem that the North American church is dramatically uh, and drastically over-programmed and under-discipled. And, and what it feels like is that great commission turned into uh, go into all the world and make more worship attenders, baptizing them in the name of small groups and teaching them to volunteer a few hours a month. And that just feels so under what Jesus calls us to. Instead, we long to be disciples, a disciple being someone who follows Jesus who longs to experience a relationship with him and build community. And that's what we love about Camp Fair. We're building community with other followers of Christ on the journey and then inevitably seeking transformation to, to truly be people, helping people find life with Jesus, that we long to have this not stay with us. We have to share this joy. There is a joy that comes in Jesus and it has to be shared. But what sometimes feels like happens is it becomes this holy huddle, this, this click. And you heard in the song, that's not the mentality. It, it is everyone is invited, but when it becomes about discipleship through programs, it never actually makes it into another life. It it just perpetuates a program. Instead, we are all disciples on this journey through faith in Christ, and we are growing in this journey. And as we grow as a community, we also aren't just a singular community, but our heart around here is is about building multi-generational communities, plural, of those that follow Jesus build community and seek transformation. And so I, I just want to celebrate a month ago, we had our annual meeting and, and I am so thankful. Our elders are incredibly thankful for your, for your generosity towards this mission. Uh, our budget was 702 last year and we were in the black. We ended the year at 709 and we were also under expenses. We ended at 697. And so I'm, I'm incredibly thankful. Our elders are just incredibly thankful for your generosity and giving through Hillcrest to that mission. And so this year, we're looking ahead to three meaningful things. We have a three-week series to launch the year, September 10th, 17th, and 24th, where we're going to introduce what it means to have this everyday missionary fund. If that's our heart, if we are everyday missionaries, we wanted to actually allocate resources if someone in our community had an idea on how they long to impact people on their prey watch list, how might Hillcrest support financially that investment. And so we're launching this Everyday Missionary Fund. Uh, An internship. We just finished our summer, our first summer intern, Tori Lancaster with Student Ministry, did a phenomenal job. And we're longing to continue to build an internship greenhouse around here. And then third, you're going to hear more about it, but what it means to be planted, this planted initiative that we want to become a hub. What would it look like for us to be a hub that makes disciples that makes disciples? So... 
We are going to continue to talk about that. And what do we do every week? We go through Luke. So we are back in Luke. Here we are after Camp Fairwood. And up at Camp Fairwood, we also walked through Luke chapter 12. We're in the section of the journey of the king. And, and if you remember, there is this already not yet reality we live in. We, we live as citizens in this world where we live, where we're planted, and through faith, we're citizens of heaven. And, and so we saw at Camp Fairwood, and if you were taking advantage of that, that devotional packet, we walked through three sections in Luke 12. What is life? Jesus talked about what is life, and then he shared how we ought to live this life. And then as we move, what, what might we face in this life? And he challenged us. He said, man, sometimes we get captivated by worry or fear or anxiety, that thing that, that comes to our mind when we wake up or when we go to bed. And he says... Instead of living with that worry or carrying that anxiety, he instead says that's what the nations of the world seek after. They seek after the accumulation of stuff and of, of food and what to wear. Instead, we don't worry or are filled with anxiety about accumulating stuff in this life. He says, instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added. These things, when your mind is geared towards eternity and certainty in the midst of challenging circumstances and a freedom that comes in life with Christ. And, and there's the Lord's Prayer that resonates with me around that idea of seeking his kingdom. And I'll read the one from Matthew. We went through Luke, but I love the way Matthew records it. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so as we enter this text this morning in Luke 13, there's a question that Jesus is going to be answering. The same crowd is there, and they're asking him about two situations that took place. They're asking him about a situation of Pilate uh, cruelly, in a brutal way, murdering people. And they're asking about a tower that fell. And in those two situations, they're asking, was there something that happened? So here's the question that they're asking. And don't answer this, but I'm going to ask a, a rhetorical question. Are the bad things that happen connected to how bad you are? That's the question they're asking this morning. Are, are the bad things that happen to us, are, are they connected to something we've done? Is it because we're doing something bad? Is it because we're bad? And for the Christian, we answer with a resounding, no, that's karma. And for the follower of Christ, we don't believe in karma. We don't believe. That's a Hindu Buddhist practice that says people will always get what they've earned and deserve. And that karma, a person's fate and life after death is decided on whether or not they're good, outweighed their bad in this life. And for them, reincarnation, supposedly in previous ones. For the follower of Christ, we understand God is sovereign in all circumstances of life. He, he is governing circumstances. And so they ask two questions. Here's the two questions that Jesus' listeners ask. They say, there was some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And they told of a second circumstance, of those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. 
The first one, Josephus records about six different situations where different pilots did evil things to people. And then the second one is possible, right? Just this was a circumstance. Luke's the one that records it. But something happened at some tower that was overseeing a pond and, and killed 18 bystanders. And the question for the crowd was, what was going on? Was, was it something bad? What, what about those people, Jesus, did they do to deserve that? Here's what, they, here's what he says to their question. What bad did they do? Jesus responds... Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? Or do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? So Jesus responds and says, you want to make it about the people who died. Oh, man, and it's a beautiful thing. He is more than welcome, right? We believe that? Yeah. We love it. If, if kids are talking to me, that is a win. Sometimes if I just go home and I'm like, you sit around the dinner table and you try and get your kids to interact, and it's like, fine, good, yes. Does that ever happen to any of you guys? Yeah. Oh, man, it's like pulling teeth, right? I'm like, I have twin nine-year-olds. I'm like teenagers. They're already 16. So he asked these questions. And then they want to make it about the people who died. Jesus instead responds and says, I want to make it about the living. Here's what he says. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You guys want to know what they did, but I want to remind you it's actually about your life. Repent or you too will perish. A little heaviness this morning. So you can imagine there was a heaviness as I was sitting in the text. There's a weight of what Jesus is calling. And this chapter 13 is right in the middle of the journey of the king where Jesus is now turning up the heat on his listeners. He knows he set it to the cross and now he's putting more pressure on those Jewish listeners and us. And then he tells a parable. Where do you think, based upon that language, he would go in the parable? You might think he'd double down on judgment. And yet, here's the hope he gives us in the parable. He actually says, God does not want any to perish. So he says, repent or you too will perish. And then he tells this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Then he answered him, sir, let it alone this year until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, then you can cut it down. So this morning... Here's where we're headed this morning. We must all repent or we will perish is Jesus' message for the morning. You're thinking, man, maybe I should have slept in this morning. That might have been a... And yet, he doesn't leave us there. He wants to make sure that we don't perish and we must understand what we must repent from and then act on it. He's trying to help us understand what it means to actually embrace repentance. So let me pray for us, and we will, we will dig into Luke 13 this morning. God, you are so gracious to us. 
You're so kind. And as Jesus leans into his listeners, may we hear Jesus' words. May we hear your words through Luke's recording of them uh, and, and be pressed on what repentance might look like more fully in our life. Thank you, Jesus, always for your glory, we pray. Amen. So you'll see in your bulletin two ideas. Here's where we're going. Jesus starts. He says, you're going towards death and you must turn around and go towards life. But he doesn't leave us there. Instead, he says he wants us to share in the joy of turning around and going towards life. And so we'll start with that first one. You are going towards death. Here's what he says in the text. (laughs) You're going towards death. What does he say? But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, now here, when you hear that word repentance, what comes to your mind? I'll tell you what comes to my mind. Sometimes I just get hit and it, it feels like it's just about behavior modification. You know that bad thing you do? Just stop doing that. When you hear repentance, sometimes you just go, yeah, I, I know those bad things. Ugh, I shouldn't do them. Stop doing them. That's what, he, that's what you might hear and what I used to hear when I heard the word repentance. And, and I don't do this very often, but I love, because I, I don't want to include the Greek word, but for this one, I think it makes all the difference in the world. When, when you hear repentance, something of behavior modification might stir in your heart. The essence of the word repentance is two Greek words put together. Metanoia. Meta, prefix or presupposition sometimes used, and then noia. Meta, we understand, we've maybe heard metamorphosis, right? Change. But in repentance, what is changing? Noia. What's noia? Knowledge. Thoughts. The essence of repentance is a change in your thinking. So, so 14 years ago today, we were doing our rehearsal dinner. Casey and I have been married 14 years tomorrow, which is crazy. Which is crazy to believe. We were sitting out on the deck last night, and we started dating April 20, 2007. 17 years ago, guys. Man, I'm getting old. Does it feel that way? Oh, man. 17 years ago. So 14 years married. So we're headed to the Mariner's Inn tomorrow night. Love the Mariner's Inn. You guys ever been to the Mariner's Inn? Hey, second service. I am so glad you're here. You're supposed to be a little more awake than first service. You guys slept in an extra hour. We're here. We did it. So we're going to the Mariner's Inn. And, and we love just discussing, talking. And, and I, I have learned over our 14 years, there are certain things that Casey doesn't necessarily appreciate that I do. Uh, There may have been circumstances where her introvert tendencies got the better of her, from my vantage point, and and she would share maybe some areas of growth or opportunities that I could step into. Now, now you would think, David, you just do it. She didn't like it, just do it. It wasn't until it finally clicked in my head, huh, She doesn't like when I do that. (laughs) And there was a change in thinking. And inevitably, when you have a change in thinking, what changes? Your behaviors. Repentance, a change in one's thinking that leads to a change in our behavior. And so Jesus is calling the living here in this moment. He says, repent or you too will perish. And then he tells those two stories. 
He told them about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had spilt, or the 18 on whom the tower in Siloam had killed. And they want to know, who is God judging? What bad did they do? But Jesus is telling them, God isn't judging now. Those circumstances that happened, that wasn't actually God judging now. Because when you go to a funeral, who's the funeral really about? The living. To remind them, you're still here. And you have a chance to what? To change. To repent or you will perish. Now, why is he threatening them with perishing? It's because sometimes it feels like we don't take too severely God's glory. The idea of threatening them with perishing is a recognition that God is deserving of all the glory, all the honor, all the praise. And so he's calling them, repent or you will perish. He's calling them, those that are alive, to trust in him. And then he continues... And and I'm speaking mostly maybe to my growing up experience in the church. He's currently correcting their wrong understanding of repentance. And in this, I hear mine. Growing up in the church, I just assumed some were more guilty than others, right? And we're smart enough not to say that. But in our hearts, we just go, well, there's some of you guys that are just a little more guilty than others. And Jesus is correcting their thinking. He doesn't hold some more guilty than others. Where do we see that in the text? Jesus asked, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners? Or do you think that those people that the tower fell on were worse offenders? My mind can't help but go to two current circumstances happening in our world right now. Those, fa- those fires in Lahaina on Maui. And then, I don't know if you know this, there's a hurricane heading towards California. <laughs> And some of us might have said, huh, what did those Californians do to deserve that judgment? Or I wonder, what was happening in Maui that they deserved what was happening to them? How does Jesus answer his people that are asking that very same question? Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners? No. 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 It wasn't about something they had done to deserve something. Instead, this is just the circumstances of our life. Some of us might even thought about COVID. Was this God's judgment? Instead, what should we take from these circumstances in life? Repent or you too will perish. It's a call for the living, Jesus says, to return. And and sometimes in our head, we start putting people in these different categories of being worse sinners. And there's a quote from Ragamuffin Gospel by Brendan Manning that strikes at my heart. And again, hear me say, I'm talking to the people that grew up in the church like me that had this worldview. These words are just stinging to my heart. These sinners, these people you despise are nearer to God than you. It's not the hookers and the thieves who find it most difficult to repent. It is you who are so secure in your piety and pretense that you have no need of conversion. They may have disobeyed God's call. Their professions have debased them, but they have shown sorrow and repentance. But more than any of that, there are people who appreciate his goodness. They are parading into the kingdom of God before you, and they have what you lack. 
a deep gratitude for God's love and a deep wonder at his mercy. Jesus is correcting their view of repentance. He said, God isn't judging in this moment. And he's not somehow holding some more guilty than others. And he's not using circumstances that produce suffering as a means of judging. He's not using these circumstances as a means of judging. How does he say that? Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Because they suffered in this way? Is, is that what you're leading to based upon the circumstances? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you all likewise perish. I tell you, but unless you repent, you all likewise perish. Have you noticed I just keep putting up the same text over and over? <laughs> It's that constant call for all of the living, repent, or this is coming your way somewhere down the future. God does not hold me guilty if my circumstances are good. He's correcting their thinking. Well, Jesus, those things aren't happening to me. I I must be good. (laughs) What does he tell the crowd? (laughs) Repent. Change in your thinking, or you too will perish. And does he leave them there? He doesn't leave them there. He then tells a parable, I think, of hope. He doesn't leave them there and just say, you're going towards death, you must turn around. He says, I want you to share in this joy of what it looks like to turn around and go towards life. And so he tells them a parable. And where does he start? Everyone's on the same plane. Everyone is guilty. Here's what he says in the parable. Repent or perish. You're all on the same plane. (laughs) Repent or perish. And then he tells the parable. And he doesn't just immediately go to the positive. There is some recognition. There is a time coming. God will condemn everyone who does not choose life in his name. Here's what he says. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came and found and seeking fruit found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, three years from now, I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year until I dig around and put manure. Then if it should bear fruit, well and good. But there is a time, he says this, if not, You can cut it down. That call to repent or you will perish. That there is a sense absolutely everyone is guilty and God will condemn everyone who does not repent. But packaged in that, packaged in that parable is this moment of hope. God's graciously providing us an opportunity to repent. Here's what he says. Pick it up at verse 8. And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. I want to look back and just look and see God's graciousness throughout the entire biblical text. 
Because maybe you come into a venue like this, maybe you go through your days and you just look and you feel like God's disappointed with you. You just beat yourself up with shame and guilt and condemnation and somehow God is, God is angry with you or, or, or you've disappointed him. Instead, the biblical call is constantly, God is slow to anger, abounding in mercy. Here's what the psalmist declares. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. To Moses in Exodus, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And then Paul picking up in Romans this concept of repentance. Not just about behavior modification, but rooted in an understanding of who God is. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to turn? It's rooted in his desire to help you find life. Peter picks up on this same message. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. There is this desire that God is longing to draw people to himself. Repent is actually a call of kindness, a call to the living. Did those people do something bad? Is God judging them? Jesus says, I'm actually talking to you guys, the living. You still have time. There's still time to come and turn to find life in me. Don't miss this chance. Here's what he says in the text. Verse 7 and 8. Look, three years from now, I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up this ground? And he answered, Sir, let it alone this year until I dig around and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. There is time. Now, don't push too far. Don't be thinking somehow this is a message that you have a year left. Don't press that. Just a general sense that there is a limited, finite amount of time on this life. And Jesus is saying, don't wait. I remember being in college playing some basketball tournaments when I was back from school. And I vividly remember one of my high school buddies turning to me and saying, David, why should I choose Jesus now? I got my entire life. I'm still praying that he would come to know Jesus. Because there is a limited time. And then he says this earlier in Luke. It's the same thread. John the Baptist said these words. He said to the crowd, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Pick it up at verse 9. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This same message continues all throughout Luke. It is a call towards repentance. And then we see this beautiful, beautiful reality. When you come... God totally forgives everyone who repents. He says this. Sir, let it alone this year until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. God's not sitting there going, wow, you didn't quite do enough. Let's try it again. Those seeds and that fruit's not quite as good as I need it to be. 
Instead, he said, if it's bearing fruit, if there's a reflection of that faith getting lived out well and good, that God is wanting to totally forgive. Sometimes it feels like in other religions, it's did I do enough and did I try hard enough? And I never quite know if I did enough to quantify and pacify the gods. God instead says, if you've turned to me well and good, live into that. And what's the category or what's the reflection indicating that repentance? Survival. Survival. You're still here. What does he say comes from your life? Fruit. Man, the recognition of God's repentance, you bear fruit. Here's what he said in Luke 13. Why should we use it up on the ground? He answered, sir, let it alone this year until I dig around and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year. (laughs) Bearing fruit is an indicator of of the repentance taking place in your life. There is the ongoing journey of spiritual transformation. There is the journey of the life of the disciple following Jesus, building community and seeking transformation, getting lived out in our Monday to Saturday. Is this heavy this morning, guys? You guys doing all right? We're here. You're with me. Some of you guys are with me. I am glad for the some of you guys that are with me. Others are thinking, what are we having for lunch this afternoon? The Packers, I wish the Packers season was going up a little bit sooner. They flow and there's this ongoing journey. And so what's the encouragement from the text? What's the, what's the parable say we ought to do? We bear fruit. And so for us around here, following Jesus means we're being still. We have everyday meetings with the king, and we long to ask, God, what are you inviting us into? We long to embody that following Jesus, not getting worked up and anxious and troubled about many things. And we long to hang with other people on this journey. You heard, you heard Cassie talk about what it meant to be on the MOPS serve team. MOPS is not primarily about volunteerism or being altruistic or philanthropic with our time, treasure, talents. It is about building community with other people on this journey. And then we inevitably want to seek transformation. We live as everyday missionaries, desperate and dependent for God to move in people's hearts. And we long for the gospel to change hearts. And so if you're unaware of what the gospel is, if you're like, I want to repent, what is the gospel? What is that that I'm leaning into? I think of the gospel in four primary ways. It's something about God. It's something about man. It's something about Christ, and it's something about our response. The simplicity of the gospel is something about God, that he is the creator and sustainer of life, worthy of all the glory, all the praise. And yet the reality is, as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, there is this original sin that mars our life. There was a fall. It is what's wrong with the world. It is the brokenness that we see all around us, and there is only one remedy. It is reconciliation through the cross by faith in Christ. And so it is something about our response. Does Jesus sit on the throne of our hearts? Do we treasure him above anything else this life has to offer? And so we enter into this journey of repentance. And in the parable... He says, so he dug. What does the parable say? He dug trenches around the fig tree. 
So we dig, we, we identify, we confess, we repent from this constant sense that other things might be clouding our mind from us pursuing God. So I'd encourage you this week, here would be my few encouragements. We do an honest inventory. We recognize what our greatest need and the depth of what we received. We, we communicate our gratitude to God and to others of his work in our life. I was sitting just earlier this week out by a pool talking to a friend and just hearing about what God had been doing in his life some 20, 10, 15 years ago and how that transformation continues to occur. And so we celebrate that grace, not earning, not performance, but grace. And then this one made me giggle. Because what else does the vine dresser do around the fig tree? <laughs> So, so, so we, we embrace manure. I'm not, we, we understand there's no bad news in the kingdom. These circumstances are actually designed for God to draw people to himself, to lead them to repent so they don't perish. And then it made me think about even what I do here on a weekly basis. I'm just spreading manure on a weekly basis. This is essentially what's happening. Embrace the manure. There is no bad news in the kingdom. The challenges of this life, God is using. He's not judging people. He said, what, did the tower fall because those people had done something? No. It was a call to say, while you're living, draw near to God. Stop relying on yourself. Stop trying to pull yourself up. Instead, lean into his work in your life. And then third, implied in the text, who gets to be the conduits of God's grace to those around us? We do. We dig trenches, we embrace the manure, and then we have the privilege of introducing people to Jesus. And that always, always includes repentance. And so as we go about that work, our purpose is to point people to the love, grace, and forgiveness of the life-transforming power of Jesus. Not just to win as a competitor. Seeing people not as a project, but rather as prisoners of war or as people needing to find repentance in the king. Not simply just change behaviors, but see thinking changed. And we communicate as effectively as we can as our aim is to help, not fight. Not always having the right words, but doing the best we can to describe. I'm just a beggar that's found some bread, and I want to share it with everyone. And then, in that movement, that privilege of inviting people into life with Jesus, we're devoted to building relationships, to establish credibility, and to spark curiosity. Our third value around here, generous relationships. Generous relationships with our time, with our treasure, with our talent. And then we encourage people to treasure Jesus and repent from all sin, not just the particular one. <laughs> There's the call, right? And that stings my heart as a recovering Pharisee. And yet it's not just about cheating on my taxes or sexual immorality, divorce, materialism, child abuse. Though there is obviously in this life justice to varying degrees. But before God, it is a call across the board to repentance. And then in that journey, for us, we always keep Jesus' death, resurrection, believing we're all saved by faith as the preeminent focus of our lives. So I want to invite the worship team up. And I, I want to pause as we continue in worship. I'm going to put up Psalm 51. And so as we're sitting here and, and continuing in worship, 
uh, I'd encourage you, read Psalm 51. It's King David's heart of repentance in the midst of his circumstances. And as we read it, might we have something that lands on us as we continue to lean in to following Jesus with our lives. Jesus, you are so good. Thank you for your work in our lives. Through faith, we we sit in your lavish mercy and grace, and we long to share that. Might you continue to call out of us, to, to, to draw out of us areas where we can continue to lean and stand in you. Thank you, Jesus. Always for your glory, we pray.